Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I was always a dreamer. I always saw a life beyond the life that I had as a child. It was like a big flashing light. This is what you're supposed to do. Everybody poo-pooed the idea. That work said it couldn't be done. You're in that zone, and it's that out-of-body experience where it just, everything clicks. Sometimes you have those dark moments. I was so depressed when I got fired. I was so mad. People don't need to be afraid to fail. And again, that, that's where you learn. You don't shouldn't be afraid of adversity. You know, that that is the thing that, that makes you strong. This is Jerry Levias. This is Jody Markell. This is Chi Yun. This is Dick Vitale, and you're listening to American Achievers. Welcome to American Achievers, the podcast that celebrates ambition, commitment to excellence, risk-taking, and tenacity on the road to success. I'm Keith Dunavant. Some of my guests are world-famous. Some are rather obscure. Our weekly lineup includes entrepreneurs, athletes, military heroes, civic leaders, artists, and media figures. What they all have in common is a sense of undeniable purpose and an intriguing story that reflects the power of the American dream. Here's part two of my interview with David Hartman. Thanks again for making the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for making the effort to come here. So we're uh, we're talking about 1975. Let's talk about the, the climate of television morning news at that point. Right. You had the Today Show, which was dominant. And has been for what, 20 years or something, yeah. You had the CBS Morning News that was always in crisis. But solid as a rock for one hour every morning. Good news, yeah. And ABC News was essentially a a, a distant third in all the ratings. This idea came from ABC Entertainment. Correct. In fact, I understand, I don't know this detail, but I understand that the network president was in some kind of conflict with Rune Arledge, that Rune wanted to take responsibility for the whole morning show, but the entertainment division said no, and they made it stick. And it was a problem for years, because Rune always wanted to take over GMA. And he, about this time, had taken over ABC News, because he'd been successful with ABC Sports. Correct. And... But the network kept it under the news division, uh, under the entertainment division, but the news division was responsible for the newscasts, which were extended newscasts at 7, 7, 38, and 8, 30. So you had the entertainment division running one. Now, when we sat down, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but when we sat down to do the program, producers like four or five of us, including Bob Shanks, the executive who had originally spoken to me about hosting the program, we agreed that since we were the entertainment division, it was incumbent on us to do an even better news program than anybody expected of us, especially the news division, because Rune was not a happy camper about giving up those two hours every morning. Uh, and tell, uh, let's talk a little bit about the, the, the powerhouse that Rune Arledge was. Oh, you know, he created what we know as sports television sports coverage and did it brilliantly going back to the Olympics in 62, I think it was. But yeah, he was just a brilliant television producer and a smart guy and a powerhouse. 
and was not afraid of wielding power within the network to the extent that he could. And he could wield a lot because of what he brought to the party. And of course, uh, right after you signed on, just a few months later, um, they changed up the evening newscast and brought in Barbara Walters, which was a, a huge gamble. A woman co-anchoring the news was a big deal in 1976. Right. It was, and that didn't work out. I mean, there were a lot of personality conflicts, as I understand. I was never working in the news division. And yet I said, when we started the program, to our staff of producers, bookers, we sat down and had a meeting. And I said, there will be, and I said this to the president of the network, I said, there will be huge criticism of you for hiring me because I don't have, quote, news credentials. But I said, I am willing to stick with it, providing... In my contract, I am in that chair for at least one year, and they agreed to it. Regardless of the ratings, I want to be in the chair for one year. And they went along with it. When we started that first month, there was not one paid commercial on Good Morning America. Not one. And I, if I recall correctly, a lot of the affiliates didn't even want to pick up the, uh, give up the airtime. Uh, no, they didn't. But they also, re- they also had the choice to jump to NBC. And that's why they had to put a program at ABC to compete with NBC, primarily. I think that you could kind of make uh, a little bit of a comparison between the birth of Monday Night Football in 1970, in which if ABC had, you know, CBS and NBC didn't want that program because they didn't want to interrupt their regular programming, programming. ABC was just desperate enough to do it and might have lost affiliates if they had not done it. Exactly. So that was the case. That's, That's a good observation in comparison. Um, so we agreed ourselves, and I said, <clears throat> I will be incredibly criticized in the media. How dare I think I can sit there and do this job? And I said, I will take the criticism. Nobody, I told our staff, nobody will work harder than I can. I'm going back to school, and it's not going to happen overnight, but I'm going back to school to be the best news interviewer I can possibly be. And that's what our goal is. This is not about me. It never is about I. It's a collaborative business. This is about us, the program that we want to put on. And if we all agree or are on the same page that we want to do the best news and information program we can do, then let's just get on with it and do it. And, and fair to say, this was the greatest risk of your life. Absolutely. Because if you fall on your face, it's not like getting a canceled right. drama series. Absolutely right. And I said it's just one day at a time. When we finish at 9 o'clock in the morning, we'd say, okay, let's do it again tomorrow and go to work. And, uh, and we did that. Did you realize that something, of course, the Today Show had been very successful going up against a juggernaut, very um, cemented public habits of watching the Today Show. Correct. And yet you're creating something that's a little bit different. It was a little bit. It wasn't quite as different as people kind of made it out to be because we did a lot of straight news and interviewing and so on. The design was not so much to take audience from today as to create a new audience. And we did that and became competitive. Within three years, we were sold out commercially. Within three years, we were number one ratings. And we felt, for the right reasons, doing the program that we wanted to do and we were proud to do. And I guess you could say the ultimate uh, validation of your success was that ABC News took you over. In time. In time. Well, that, that goes to many years later. <laughs> oh, I know, but I'm just saying, doesn't, yeah. doesn't that say you were right? Yeah. 
What was interesting about that was that years later, and this is only maybe six, seven years ago, Charlie Gibson, who had replaced me, invited me and a couple of ABC News executives and a couple of others, his close friends, to come out to their house in, in, Colorado, in Utah and ski one weekend, including the president of the ABC News. And ABC News had taken over GMA. And we were having a glass of wine one afternoon after skiing, and the president of ABC News said, we had just met the first time. And he said, would you clear something up for me? I said, I don't know. I'll try. What? He said, we tried for years to take over at ABC News to take over GMA. And after you left, we finally became successful at doing that. And he said, no sooner did we take it over, he said, we practically ran the show off a cliff. And he said, how do you account for that? I said, sir, I have no idea. That's not my territory. But you said it. Who knows? There was just a combination of values that we did, and we hope we informed. And again, it's a collaborative business. It's not about I. This is about we. And we had the committed staff, producers, writers, bookers, and they all have to work as a team and all agree at what the goal is every day and what we would and would not do on the air. There were interviews, and we'd say, well, we're going to interview so-and-so? we say, no, this is Good Morning America. We will not touch that. Where was that line at that point? <clears throat> it had to do with certain values. I'm trying to remember. Oh, the, President Kennedy apparently had an affair with a woman from San Diego. I can't remember her name right now. But the idea floated down from the entertainment division Let's put her on as a co-host for a week. And we all said, we quit. Literally, we said, no, we're out of here. That won't happen if you want us to stay. Producers, writers, me. And I said, okay. So we drew the line. How did you balance this, clearly a desire that you had and everybody else there had, to do journalism, but in this hybrid environment? First of all, I, I, I don't like the term born to do this work. I wouldn't use that term, although I just did. GMA was all the years from the time I was a kid of researching and trying new stuff and being interested in lots of things simultaneously. It came to doing GMA because we covered everything. So, you know, obviously news, politics, Washington, foreign affairs, finance, science, sports, entertainment. We covered, but the people at the highest levels of all of those, you know, the secretary, the treasury, and the council of economic advisors. I mean, we did at the highest levels in every one of these subjects. And, and it was a matter of trying to learn who are these people? What is leadership? What do they bring to the party? What can we learn about what they're doing to help us understand how the country and the world works? I mean, that was our goal. And it was a daily, wonderful challenge. How long did it take you to feel comfortable in it, that role? It took many months easily, because at the beginning, I was very nervous. But it was a matter of months. But again, it was a matter of growth, too. I mean... You know, you get better and better at it just because you learn every day and you learn from mistakes. But again, with the staff and Steve Bell, my partner in crime, did the news in Washington, became a wonderful mentor and teacher to me. He had been bureau chief in Vietnam. He had been White House, uh, you know, correspondent for ABC News. And Steve is a great journalist. And uh, he, was, he became a mentor for me and, and was a wonderful teacher. 
So it was a you know day to day thing. I thought at the beginning that it would get easier uh, and not be an eighteen hour a day job. And I realized the last day after eleven years and four months, I laughed at, at when we did the last show. I said to our crew, and our crew was with us for eleven years. The best friends I have on the planet are that little gang of technicians and colleague writers and so on. But I said, you know, all those years I thought it's going to get easier. And we all laughed, and we said, it never got easier because of what we tried to do every day to do it right and to be a useful program and bring information to people that they could use in their lives in some constructive way. What is that transformation from actor to interviewer, broadcaster? What does that say about you and about the American experience? It's a, first of all, it's about being curious. You cannot fake curiosity. And you can tell by watching and listening to interviewers these days who was doing it just to get a headline and who was doing it because they're genuinely curious. Now, we had more time. It wasn't like we had more than two minutes. We'd have six, eight, ten minutes where you can get a lot of information if you've done your homework. The job of interviewing is all about doing the homework because if you don't know what you're up to, anybody worth their salt who's coming on the program to make a point can just do you in. Because you, you, want, you understood that people come on with agendas. And oh, absolutely. And you better know their agenda, and you better know your marbles so that you can ask questions. <clears throat> and the business of the first lesson for me of the interview business is always to remember, it is not about me. It is not about me. It is not about me. It's about the information. Are we getting the information? And there is no question you cannot ask as long as you do it with respect. If you invite somebody into the parlor, right, our parlor, to be interviewed, they deserve respect, whether you agree with them or not. I was delighted many years later with a number of people in public life, I mean, way up in public life, to ask me about, including some presidents, ask me, what are your politics? And I would just smile and say, you don't know. And they said, no, we don't. Or each one said, no, I don't know your politics. Tell me. And I said, no, that's not the point. It's not my politics. It's all about you. It's not about me. So it's a business of asking good questions, mostly that are informed and that cannot be answered with yes or no. When you listen today at the number of interviewers on television, especially, who will ask questions that being answered with yes or no, you're not going to get an answer. Except yes or no, and that doesn't go anywhere. How irritating is it to you to see the agenda-driven It's difficult because today? It's, what's disappointing to me are the number of people, <clears throat> if you want to be a pundit, then get on the other side of the table and put on your pundit hat. But if you're interviewing, the idea is to elicit information that will help us have a better understanding of what it is we're talking about. It's not about me. It's about the information. So, Beyond the curiosity aspect, what, what are some of the other characteristics that it takes to be a good interviewer? Just be curious, uh, genuinely curious. Do your homework. Really know your stuff. I always said that if I couldn't do the entire two hours without a note, that I wouldn't be there. So 95% of the job is doing homework, which is what I spent all my time doing except on the air. How long did it take you to get past the feeling in the back of your head? I'm just an actor. What am I doing here? 
I didn't have a problem with that because I knew I wasn't acting. I knew I was just as a person just asking questions. That was not, that didn't resonate with me at all. wasn't a problem. I knew I was just a vessel here just asking questions and being truthful in doing it, honest. A warning answer. It's not brain surgery. It's asking questions. But, but what did this transition in your life, what did it say about the possibility of reinvention in America? Well, for me it was that no matter how old you are, you, an old dog can learn new tricks. And it's too bad when people are criticized for wanting to change boats midstream. And people say, you can't do that. It's not what you did, which is too bad because old dogs can learn new tricks. You just have to believe you can and say, okay, I did that. Now, this is new. This is exciting. This is challenging. How well can I do it? I don't know, but I'm going to try every day. And, uh, you know, we weren't perfect. I wasn't perfect, but we did okay. And there were, you know, examples of people we spoke with that we literally, in a sense, used uh, to fulfill our mission that we saw to inform people. Uh, one was Henry Kissinger. And after he left government, after Mr. Ford was not reelected, we were at a, some kind of an event and happened to run into each other. And I had interviewed him once or twice before. And we just said hello. And I said to Dr. Kissinger, I have an idea. May I run it by you? He said, sure. And I said, it seems to me that very few people really understand the complexities of foreign policy. And he kind of chortled and he said, yes. He said, including a lot of people who think they know about foreign policy. He said, what's your idea? And I said, would you consider coming on with us and we'll make you back into Poli-Sci 101 Profit Harvard to talk about the various major aspects of how one goes about creating foreign policy. What's at stake? What are the considerations? Who are the people involved, et cetera? And he said, go on. And, and he said, give me an idea. I said, for instance, the Cold War. I said, how do you explain the Cold War to somebody that doesn't know what the term means? And given the complexity of the Cold War and how it has to do with the entire planet, he said, I like this idea. He said, let's do it. So we did about maybe eight or nine programs where we did anywhere from oh, six to 10 or 11 minutes where we would take big hunks. We did the Cold War, did the Iron Curtain and so forth. And we did it with fourth grade maps that are colored. You know, Germany is this color and Romania is that color and so on. But we did that about... Asia, Japan, China, Middle East, Africa, Central America, South America, and him just talking as a teacher about the complexities, not making a, an opinion about judgment about what we should do in terms of policy, but what are the factors involved and the players, and what are the considerations that we have to think about in order for this to be a successful episode of whatever it happened to be in foreign policy. So we did that several times, and, uh, and he was literally just came on as a teacher. And it wasn't about, there were people who disagree, certainly, with some of his, you know, judgments as Secretary of State and National Security Advisor and all of that, but that's fine. That's not what we were doing. We were doing something way more basic and informative. And yet revolutionary, because after all, uh, you know, this is not a role that John Foster Dulles played on right. television in the 60s. Right. Yeah, that's right. And so I think, I think he enjoyed it. Uh, it certainly was informative for our 
our gang, I mean our audience, and uh, uh, to hear him. And goodness knows he's a walking encyclopedia of this particular subject over the years. So yeah, it was terrific with him. What was it about about Dr. Kissinger that made him effective on television? Well, first of all, smart as as can be and knowledgeable, as I explained. Uh, but also, he's got a kind of a wicked sense of humor. Um, I asked him live one day on how disappointed he was. And there goes back to asking questions, not are you disappointed? How disappointed were you, are you, that you can't run for the presidency of the United States because you were born in Germany? And he said, I wasn't, I'd like to do my Ted Koppel imitation of Henry Kissinger, but I won't. Koppel's got it down to a T. How disappointed you couldn't run for president? He said, I wasn't disappointed at all. And I said, why not? He said, because I'd rather be king. <laughs> but it all was very, oh, it's very quiet, very slow. But he had a great sense of humor. Anyway, that was a wonderful experience, uh, and one that we felt helped us fulfill our mission. You know, you conducted. Uh, my research says over twelve thousand live interviews on GMA. Yeah. What was the one that s- surprised you the most? Uh, I don't. Uh, none actually. Um, again, because we did so much homework. There were very few surprises. And my attitude was, if I didn't already know the answers to nine out of ten questions, then I shouldn't be sitting there. If you're not that knowledgeable to begin with, you have no business doing the interviews. And once in a while, you'd get a surprise. But that only grew out of having knowledge about the subject to begin with that you could even ask questions like that. Example, Hubert Humphrey, late Senator Humphrey from Minnesota. And after he maybe a year after he died, I asked Muriel Humphrey, Mrs. Humphrey, if she would be willing to, because she was rarely interviewed. And so I interviewed her. I said, you know, your husband was such a spirit of, you know, energy. Had nothing to do with politics of of left, right, center. Uh, Just as a person, he just had this ebullience and this constant energy uh, about the country and about, you know, his role and so on. And I said that energy was just, it was empowering to see that somebody that could be at that level in government and have that kind of energy. I said, did you ever see him down or angry? And I repeated angry. I said, angry. Did you ever see Hubert Humphrey, Senator Humphrey, angry? And she looked at me almost cold-eyed and said, yes, I have. Yes, I did. And I didn't know what was coming. I had no idea. But I thought, wow, what is this about? And I said, when was it? She said, after the West Virginia, the last primary, when he was up against Jack Kennedy to be the nominee for president of the United States back in 1960. And she said he watched and saw how Kennedy campaign people were giving people $5 bills and a pint of booze in West Virginia to vote for Kennedy. I'll tell you, that was a showstopper. I don't know what to say to that. But I thought, wow. So, yeah, Hubert Humphrey could get angry. That was just interesting. Yeah. So. What was the one person that you didn't get to interview that just still gnaws at you? Jesus. Why? Oh, just because of the impact that one human being has had on the, on the world. Uh, you could throw, throw in Muhammad at the same time, put him in there and maybe Buddha, too. Uh, it would have been really interesting, obviously, 
talk with people like that nowadays, knowing what we know about how the world is, has generated. But in terms of real, today, alive people, um, I never interviewed President Sadat of Egypt. I would have liked that. I interviewed almost all of the, the uh, Israeli leaders uh, for over that 11-plus years I was there. King Hussein of Jordan, which is what a gentleman he was. He was a guest several times. But these were all very informative to be able to talk with these leaders in key positions in the world and making decisions. But Sadat, I would have enjoyed talking to Mr. Sadat. Do you remember? I never interviewed Mr. Gorbachev either. I've met him. I would like. I would have enjoyed talking to Gorbachev. Talk about the fact that he was a Soviet, uh, you know, for his whole career, and yet somehow he came to the point where he said, "We can't continue like this." I remember in a trip I made to the Soviet Union back in the early '80s, talking with a political, a member of political, you know, person, and off the record. And I said, are you a committed communist? He said, absolutely. And he said, are you a committed capitalist? I said, absolutely. And I, I said, how do you describe your country? And he said, sadly, he said, sadly, we are a third world country with a rocket program. And he said, I'm not sure what that says about the future. But he said, I know that, I said, who's going to win this, U.S. versus Russia? And he said, I don't know, but I know what a telltale sign will be. I said, what's that? He said, when they open a McDonald's in Red Square, I'll know you won. And years later, a McDonald's opened in, in Red, near Red Square. And I, I wanted to call the guy. I didn't. But, but anyway, I would love to have talked to Gorbachev about where, how he came from being a committed Soviet person to the point where he said it's time to dissolve the Soviet Union, which he did. You certainly interviewed uh, Ronald Reagan a number of times. Yes, sir. Talk about Reagan and his role in, in ending the Cold War. Well, Reagan was so underrated I, because, you know, he had been a Democrat. He had been a labor leader for years. And when he was elected governor, I, f I think this goes back to something you said before about, about old dog, new tricks. I mean, people didn't realize that he was working for years to generate the knowledge to run for office, twice elected governor of California. That didn't happen by mistake. But even when he was president, certain people in the media would refer to him as former actor President Ronald Reagan. That was well, a former actor who <laughs> yeah. was interviewed. That well, must at have really some point, out. when he's president of the United States and trying to, you know, Win the Cold War, there comes a point where you stop describing him as a former actor because he became a very, you know, influential, powerful, effective leader. Yeah, the B-1 bomber had something to do with that. But that's a too involved long story. But uh, putting the B-1 bomber back in the air after it had been shelved for 10 years. But he was gutsy. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. What did that moment say to you? I mean, did that oh, I, I, I mean, talk about an emotional moment. But for him to stand in front of the Bundestag in, in Berlin, and I understand that that line had been written. I have to go back and re-research this. See, there I go, research. Exactly. But I think one of the speechwriters had written the line in, or he had put it in and it was taken out. The State Department kept taking it out. Is that right? It was, yes. And, and he said no. And he left it in. But I th that was, you talk about a key emotional moment in terms of international policy 
for him to stand there and say, Mr. Gorsuch, yeah, the way he did, because he was so charming and even-handed the way he spoke and brilliant at it, and that was an emotional moment. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And by the way, the night it happened, only maybe a half a dozen people that I met interviewing on the program became genuine friends later. A lot of acquaintances, goodness knows, but not real friends, what I call friends. It was William Highland. He was career CIA, going, dating back to World War II, a National Security Council, a colleague of Mr. Kissinger's. He was National Security Council several years. In fact, uh, when, when Carter was elected, Highland was picked to stay as the transition member of the National Security Council to help it transform to Carter from Ford and so on. A career intelligence guy. And he and his wife became friends. And after he wanted to become head of the CIA and didn't get it in Reagan's period, but became the editor-in-chief of Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs Magazine, Council of Foreign Relations Policy Magazine. It was best best in the world on that subject. And anyway, so he moved to New York with his wife. And once every couple of months, we would just go out and have supper and see a movie and chit-chat. Yeah, it was just so, pure social. And one night on the Upper East Side, a little Italian restaurant, I remember right where it is in the I-50, we would supper. And I could ask him questions, and, and he knew that I could ask him something, and if he couldn't answer it because of security reasons, that he'd say, eh, I can't talk about that, or whatever. He wouldn't even have to say that. So I was careful not to ask him a lot of stuff, you know, socially, that I knew he couldn't answer. But at the time, and this is 1989, the satellite countries, Soviet countries, East Bloc, were starting to kind of fall apart. And I said to Bill, I said, are you seeing any kind of, or hearing any kind of talk about the Berlin Wall and about East Germany? And I wasn't sure he was going to answer, but he looked at me and said, uh, the answer is no. He said, I'm not blowing smoke or misleading you. He said, no, we haven't heard anything. And he was wired in. I know he had done an article for Foreign Affairs <laughs> with Gorbachev and Reagan that they wrote t together at one point. So the answer was no. My wife and I had a car. We dropped them off at their apartment in the upper 80s. We drove back to Westchester, our home. I flipped on the evening news at 11 o'clock, and there were the people on the wall with axes and chipping away the Berlin Wall. Now, you talk about emotion. I cried. My God, it's over. I mean, the Cold War is over when this can happen. It was a really emotional moment. And um, I called Bill at the apartment, and he answers that loud. I said, Bill, are you watching TV? And he said, the Cold War is over. And then he went on and talked about it. And it was the name of his next book, which I had in the other room. But he did say we had no idea. And that, that whole thing about how that happened is quite a story, by the way. A guy for this Stasi, the you know, East German police, had screwed up and said something wrong, and it opened up the gates of whatever. It's a great story. Let's talk about some of your memorable interviews through the years. If you had to rank somebody at the top, who oh would boy. it be? Oh, boy. There were too many to say one. Uh, Kissinger was always just such an enlightening experience that that was always good. Five months after U.S. bombed Libya, trying to kill Gaddafi, he had disappeared on the desert in Libya, and uh, nobody knew where he was. I, we think, including intelligence, didn't know where he was night to night, thinking he apparently was just kind of driving around. 
in campers to avoid American intelligence. I don't know that that's true, but I think it was. At any rate, five months later, every news organization in the world had put in requests. This is a normal routine to put in requests for interviews. And we got a phone call one Saturday night saying, would you like to come to Libya and interview Gaddafi? I was on the phone with our producer, Amy Hirsch. I said, I don't know, Amy, may I think about it? And of course, we, we both laughed. Anyway, so I flew to Libya the, the next night and interviewed him for an hour. So that was a... How did you find him? A messianic dictator, well-educated, charming. Charming? Killer. Char- a charming killer. Oh, yeah. Trying to be charming. Yes. But you know what was behind it all. It was a tough interview because there was a lot of fact we didn't have. Normally, as I said earlier, when you interview, you've got to know 90% of what you're talking about before you even start the interview. There was so much we didn't know. We did not know for sure that he was behind bombings in Beirut, in Italy, in Germany, killing Americans and other servicemen and so on. We thought he was, but there was no proof. And so it's really hard to do an interview like that where you really don't know the truth. It was really challenging, but interesting experience, Gaddafi. You know, that's at the policy end. There were other interviews with people. Ted Williams, great baseball player, of course. 19, big leagues, Red Sox, enlisted Marine Corps, and even enlisted Marine Corps World War II, but again, for the Korean War, left the Red Sox, volunteered to go back and fly in Korea. You think about Statistically, oh. if you put those years back into the his, box for Ted Williams, right. what his numbers would exactly. be. Exactly. But Ted, and all the story about how he could be so nasty and all that stuff, well, we spent two or three days together. We went fishing and had dinner together, and it, it was just charming. And he was charming as could be. But I asked him about that. I said, you know, when you would, you know, spit at reporters— and he, he'd get embarrassed and say, God, I don't believe I did that. It was just charming to hear him admit. But he said, I was 19 years old. I was terrified. I was scared every time I got in the batter's box. Now, how interesting to hear that from wow. Ted Williams, one of the greatest two or three hitters of all time. Some consider the best hitter of all time. Um, but that was just a, just a charming experience. And for people to see this legend, this icon who had not been interviewed in 20, 25 years in public. So we thought of that as a kind of public service. Did anybody have a better last act than Ted Williams? Last at bat, home run. (laughs) Did you ask him about that? (laughs) I don't remember whether I did or not. I just remember asking him, uh, I'd have to go back and look at the interview now. I remember asking him if he would rather, instead of playing games, would you rather just have stood there with a batting practice pitcher and a catcher and just had batting practice every day for three hours? He said, I wish I'd thought of that. He said, that would have been perfect. And I wouldn't have to face, and he said, I wouldn't have to face Bobby Feller. He said, Feller got me. He said, I couldn't hit Bobby Feller. Uh, it was just interesting little moments if you're into baseball. Well, and, and the scientific approach that, that Williams took to, to hitting. Right. Just remarkable. If yeah. But again, that's... And that's touching on getting acquainted with extraordinary people. We got acquainted every day with extraordinary people. And there are lessons to be learned from extraordinary people. And what are some of those lessons that you learned? Well, it's, it's discipline and risk-taking. We talked about taking chances. 
about having a mission beyond yourself. I think that's key for me in all this business if we're talking about, you know, a fulfilling life. You know, could you find a mission, personal life mission, beyond self-satisfaction? And most people I know who are, you know, pretty fulfilled lives found ways to do something with their life that was beyond their own self-gratification, a purpose, if you will. And most people that were our guests wouldn't have been there at all if they, to some degree, didn't have those qualities of wanting to make a difference in some way. Now, we might not all agree with the way some of them did it. That's fine. That's part of our job, too. Say, who are these people? But it was, it was life learning every day to do these interviews and get acquainted with these people. And that was a privilege. Doing this work for over 11 years was the privilege of a lifetime. How many people have responsibility each day for trying to bring people information in their homes, millions of people, that they can use in a constructive way in their lives? You're listening to American Achievers. Stay tuned for more conversation. So you've you chronicled people's joy, you chronicled their heartbreak. What's more powerful television? I think they're both important, if that's your question. They're both important because they tap into our deepest sense of who we are, what we might want or not want for our lives. Important to tell both stories, if we're talking about two and extremes. There's one powerful that we, you and I have not mentioned uh, that was the most extraordinarily painful moment of my entire GMA period. His name was John Walsh and his wife, Reve, and their two-year-old son, Adam, back in the late 70s, I think it was, early 80s, early 80s, 81 maybe, was kidnapped from a store in Hollywood, Florida, and was missing. And our booker, one of our bookers, had seen a story in, I think, the Atlanta Constitution about this, that this couple's boy had been abducted and was they were searching like crazy in South Florida for the baby. Um, so our production people contacted John and Reve and asked if they would like to come on GMA and talk about it uh, because there were child kidnappings going on all the time and no, nobody ever made anything out of it to speak of. And he said, absolutely, this is not only our problem, it's a national problem. So they flew up, stayed at a hotel where we put guests, Central Park South, and apparently at midnight, around midnight, our producer, Amy Hirsch, got a call from a sheriff in South Florida, I think Dade County, if I'm not mistaken. And the sheriff said, we have found remains but we need dental records from Adam. Would you see if you can arrange something with John Wall? And Amy said, I'm a television producer. This is not appropriate for me to do, but may I have John call you or you will call John. I'll tell you where you can reach him. Yes. Long story short, they come to the studio at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was in earlier than usual. I was at 4.30. And... And we had, Amy had already told the Walches, 
We'll put you on an airplane now. You don't have to be on TV. Go. This is more important, you know, the possibility that they found your son's remains. And John said no. And I went to him again also at 6 o'clock, 6.30, and said, you don't have to go on the air. Go get in the car. Go home. Be where you belong. And he said, no, it's too important for me to get this word out. And he said, this was key, he said, we're pretty sure that the remains they found are not Adam. They came on live, I think it was 8.15 or something, and we talked. Reve, God bless her heart, was catatonic. She could not talk. I mean, can you imagine a mom under the circumstances? Anyway, John was able to talk and talked about the, the national problem and the challenge, and we got to do something about it, and he made it a big issue for the country, not just for them. When the segment was over, we went to commercial. He reached over and touched my hand and said, can you and I talk? And, I mean, I just looked at him. I thought, uh-oh. I said, sure. We stood up. I'll never forget the moment and walked around. The set is right there. We walked around behind the set. John came almost right up into my face, and he said, I apologize to you, but I lied. We're pretty sure that the head they found is our son. Well, of course, the two of us were just, I, we hugged and cried like hell. And I mean, it was just horrible to be with this family when, you know, under the circumstances. There is a plus end to this that John went on to do America's Most Wanted and has, you know, became instrumental in making new national legislation about children. And, uh, he has done an incredible public service and reveille. Uh, as a result of that experience. But there was a painful story that we put on the air that we hope was a public service. Now, how did that affect you? Oh, I was just devastated. I mean, my God, I had four young children myself at the time. You know, they're now grown, but my kids were the, similar. They were a little bit older than, than Adam was, but um, but not much. And so, yeah, it was just beyond description. I as I said, it was the most emotionally powerful moment I had in over 11 years. How do you avoid getting emotionally involved with everybody you interview? It's, 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 sometimes it's really hard. Most of the time it's not because, you know, you're, I'm, I'm interviewing. I'm just trying to elicit information. <clears throat> but occasionally there were moments where you really have to steal yourself because if I get emotional, then chances are the audience, audience may not. And you want for them to get the impact of the story from the people who are telling the story, not from me. <clears throat> At least that's my feeling about it. Another example was um, former governor of Texas, and he, Ms. Con John Connolly and Nellie Conlon. He was governor of Texas in the car with President and Ms. Kennedy when Kennedy was shot. They had not gone public in 20 years telling the story of that day and agreed to do it with us. We didn't do it live on purpose because we wanted to just have a conversation and let them talk. She described the the car ride with the Kennedys and coming around to Dealey Plaza. And she just before we got to Dealey Plaza, she said the crowds were cheering for the president and whatever. And just as we came around into near Dealey Square, I leaned to the president and I said, Mr. President, you cannot say that people of Texas don't love you. I got, I got emotional at that one. Because within seconds, of course, he was dead. But there were, again, people firsthand telling of their experience at a moment that, you know, that 
that everybody who was alive at the time will tell you where they were at that moment. So it was a powerful, powerful moment. And then, of course, other times you're, you're trying to objectively report about the arc of someone's life. It may not be tragic, but it may be sad. And I think the, the ending of Muhammad Ali's career hmm. falls into that category. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, thanks for recalling that. Uh, he had been a guest several times on the program. We had visited him at his training camps a few times. Uh, what a powerful personality besides being a great boxer, but <clears throat> he was just a powerful personality. His last fight was in the Bahamas against Trevor Burbick, who had been the um, Canadian heavyweight champion. I think he had fought Burbick before, I believe, and won. But he decided to fight Burbick. And it was in just a public, you know how you have like four soccer fields with a little clubhouse in the middle for kids to change their clothes to play soccer. And I had been down there for two or three days with him and ran with him in the morning. And we, you know, went to his workouts and so on and so forth. And, of course, we went to the fight that night, sitting in little folding chairs. And even then, the three or four of us said during the fight, I mean, here we are in the middle of a kid's soccer field in the Bahamas when one of the greatest, you know, boxers of all time is fighting his last fight. There's something inappropriate about this, <coughs> we felt. But ended up, Burbick won in a decision. We walked back, there were only a handful of us, you know, his, his handlers, a few, four or five people, and three or four of us from GMA. We went back into a little concrete blockhouse locker room with little wooden benches, no facility. I mean, you know, it's what you'd expect, a little kid's soccer field, concrete building. No lockers, no nothing. And Champ went over and sat down on a wooden bench in the corner. I had my cameras with me. I wanted desperately to take that picture of Lee slumped in the corner after they cut his clothes off. And it was just a tragic moment because he knew it's the end of his career. But I could not take that picture. I didn't want anybody remembering Muhammad Ali that way. What did that moment say to you about the cycle of life? Wow. Jeez. <laughs> I don't know. I guess just get up in the morning, do the best you can, and let that be, you know, your kind of code that you did the best you could. But in the end, even the greatest of all time is beaten yeah. and marginalized. Right. And sadly, that was a decision. Nobody wanted it. As I recall, nobody wanted him to do that fight because he was already slipping and everybody knew it mentally which was also tragic to watch. When you knew him at his height, when he was just clever and fun and great at what he did. Yeah, it was just a sad moment, but it was also a decision he made that he wanted to make that fight. And a lot of people, as I understand it, tried to talk him out of it. But hey, life goes on, right? And you had to deal with one of your own endings not too long after that. Uh, GMA, your, your GMA run comes to an end. How tough was that? What? It, you're ending at GMA. Oh, uh, it was fine. Um, I'd been there 11 years in four months, and my contract was up, and it didn't have any of those funny clauses in it where you couldn't stay or go or what. It's a bunch of legal mumbo-jumbo. Uh, I, I was able to just, on that last day, just walk out the door and say bye. But I had decided several months earlier to leave. 
I felt I can't do any more here because cable was now becoming important. The internet was just beginning, but cable was becoming a new major competitor to the networks because up until then, and up until 1980 or so, it was just the three networks. That was it. So that was great. We knew each other. We competed. We made each other better, I think, all three. And also, the show was beginning to change because the network had to become more competitive. They had to make interviews shorter, do more entertainment stuff, which was not our particular interest. <coughs> I'll go back to our original mission to do a news and information program, but make sure the news is paramount. And um, the show was becoming more entertainment-oriented, and it wasn't anything that I wanted to do, and I'd been there for well over 11 years, and thought, okay, time. And I knew I could make a living doing something or other, but I didn't want to continue to do the program. To, I didn't want to stop doing the program we'd been doing. And I understood that from a competitive point of view, the network didn't have any choice if they were going to stay afloat. So it was fine. Get up, new day. Tell me about the day you met your wife. She was a production assistant. Good gracious. <clears throat> she was a production assistant on a game show uh, in Hollywood. And I was, was during that period when I was in L.A. And um, she came to me, and I was going to be on the show as a guest or whatever, and I had to sign a release, as you all do when you go on a TV or radio program, you have to sign a release. It says, I grant all rights and all that. And I shook hands with her and signed a release, and I just was struck. I thought, God, what an attractive woman, and a great handshake. And I called the studio later that day to try to reach her. I knew her name, but I didn't know, of course, how to reach her except through the show. And said, it was a pleasure meeting you and so forth and so on. Could, would you like to go out sometime or get together and have dinner or do something? And she said, yes, I'd like that. Well, we don't always do things smartly. The next day, I left for spring training for four weeks. And you didn't call her, did you? No. <laughs> Not after that initial phone call. But when I get back, I had a call from some friends who were involved with the L.A. Lakers. And they said would you like to come to the Lakers game tonight and sit on the end of the bench? Which apparently was the deal they had, have civilians sometimes can sit, I guess, on the end of the bench. Jack Nicholson. Oh, there you are. So I said, yeah, that'd be fun. Well, I thought, oh, Maureen, maybe she'd like to go to a basketball game. So I called her, and on the other end of the phone, she was what I now know is pure Maureen. She said, wait a minute. You call me to go to dinner. You disappear for weeks. You come back, and then you invite me to sit on the bench at a professional basketball game? I said, yeah, I guess I am. Smooth, very smooth. Oh, yeah. Right. Are you kidding? Lady killer. So we went to the game. We got married three days later, three years later, three years later. Had four kids, and they're the joy of my life. Nothing more important than those four. What's the most important thing you learned from her? Oh, golly. Always maintain a sense of humor. She was so smart. I always said she was the smart one, and I persevered. <laughs> we were going to compare us. Yeah, she was a foreign policy buff, and so she loved issues. So we just talked about that stuff all the time in front of the kids. Kids grew up listening to nothing but us talk about national, <laughs> international affairs all the time, just for 
because we like talking about it, always maintain a sense of humor. She could find humor anywhere, and that was wonderful, because I tend to be very serious most of the time. I remember one of our producers, executive producer, one time I described at an event honoring him. I said his job was to keep me from being too serious on the program every day. And my job was to keep him from bringing ostriches into the studio to have a race because he could <laughs> do that kind of junk. But we balanced out pretty well. But anyway, I always have a sense of humor, and Marina always did. And you lost her. Yeah. Yeah, I remember asking her to cancer. And uh, after she was diagnosed, and it was only eight months. <clears throat> but I remember her sitting on the third step of our staircase at our home and saying to her after she was diagnosed, and we really knew what was going on, sadly. And uh, I said, so what's going through your head right now? Very typical Marine. She just looked at me and shook her head and said, bad luck. Bad luck. Not... Why did God do this to me? Why all the other things you can say? Did I do something wrong? Because she hadn't, God knows. She just said, bad luck. And it was. Yeah, she was great. How tough was that for you to deal with? And how oh, long did I can't even describe it. I can't even describe it. To this day, I can't. And with our four kids, two were in high school, two were in college at the time. And it was awful for them. It was awful for me. Did anything in your life up to that point prepare you for the pain? No way. No way. Nor should people prepare themselves for it. We should live our lives, get up, do the best we can every day, make the most of it, try to take care of ourselves, be disciplined, make something happen, whatever, all my stuff that I talked about. But uh, we shouldn't sit around preparing ourselves for that kind of pain. You just deal with what comes. And you've always exuded an optimism. Your yeah. life, haven't you? Very much so. But when that hits, you know, you realize you have no control over certain things. You just don't. And obviously we didn't. And then what do you do? That's the next question. When, what do you do? Each one of us, the kids and I each, going through our own hells. And you just get up the next day and take an hour at a time and do the best you can. And that's what we all did. And that's what every family does. And... Obviously, millions of families go through exactly this. We weren't alone, but everybody has to deal with it their own way and the best they can, sadly. And by this point, you had already reinvented yourself as doing other things after GMA. Tell me about that life. Just to try to keep a hand in doing production uh, for PBS, did 11-part series for PBS, uh, walking tours of New York with a historian, architecture historian, Barry Lewis. And we did these 11, mostly two-hour programs, where we walked the entire city of New York. And it was glorious. It was a great experience. He's a walking encyclopedia about the history of New York. So that was fun. I mean, every day it was learning new stuff. And if you love New York, as all of us New Yorkers do, or most of us do, that was really an eye-opener. Because we tend in New York not to look up at buildings and not to look like a tourist. Well, we spent 11 two-hour programs being a tourist, and it was great fun. What is it about the pulse of New York that captivated you? Oh, man, I don't know. But when you grow up there, the energy. I think New Yorkers get a bad rap. Sometimes people think, oh, they're going too fast and they're nasty. I defy anybody to walk in Manhattan in New York or Brooklyn or Queens or Bronx or Staten Island and open a tour guide book of any kind and stand there and look at it and look around for a minute. 
within a minute, some New Yorker is going to come up to you and say, where are you trying to go? Let me help you. Where are you? And those are the New Yorkers that are, that are wonderful. The rest of the time, they're going at Mach 6, trying to go from A to B. And they're all trying to make something happen. They're all trying to do something. And that's, that's great energy. You can do, you just stand in a doorway in New York, any place. Place doesn't stand still. People are going somewhere. They're doing something. And that's great energy to watch. Yeah, it's cool. And yet you uh, wound up moving to North Carolina. I did. Tell me about that. Well, uh, a few years after my wife died, I uh, was involved with the choral music symphony program at the Duke University Chapel. I'd been invited down. When the concert was over, I was introduced to a woman, also widowed, Mary Putman. And a couple of years later, we got married. So she has nine grandchildren. I now have, and she has three kids, grown nine grandchildren. I have four kids and one grandchild so far. And so we just combined these two big <laughs> families. Uh, and it, it was it was pure luck. Neither of us were looking. Neither of us ever thought we would meet anybody else. And we talk a lot about her late husband and my late wife, you know, because that's part of who we are. So. Is there ever a day when you don't miss your late wife? No. <clears throat> and as you can tell, if you walk around the living room here, you'll <laughs> see an occasional picture of her. Yeah, no, no day goes by, of course. That's the way it is. You've been able to uh, indulge your aviation fascination. Yeah, I sure have. I mean, that's been wonderful. And it's also given me a way to keep producing and writing because I've written scores and scores of long-form documentaries about the history of military aviation space and space, uh, which has been wonderful. I mean, I'm not doing anything more for PBS or the networks at this point anyway, but it gives me a chance just to keep doing homework and keep a hand in. But we did at GMA, it started... We decided, think about this today on morning television, we decided to do an entire, entire two-hour program on how does the U.S. government create a weapons system. Now, it sounds a little obtuse, but the more we thought about, in this case, we picked the B-1 bomber, but, you know, if you talk about a, a new tank or a new ship or something, the complexity and the expense of doing that involves Congress, the Pentagon, science, the White House, money, industry. It is so complicated. And I thought, why don't we do a program that's just a primer, just a primer on how this process goes? And we did B-1 Bomber. We decided on it. This is back in 1984. And part of it was that I went and flew in a three-and-a-half-hour test mission in the B-1 at Edwards Air Force Base. And I was shooting video and still cameras in the cockpit. We had to chase planes and they're shooting pictures of us and so on and so forth in the B-1. Four weeks later to the day, that plane crashed and two of the people who had flown me, of the three, were in the plane that crashed. One of them, the chief test pilot for Rockwell, was killed. And immediately, our producer and I huddled. We found out about it one o'clock in the afternoon here, or here in the East Coast. And she said, you know what? I don't see how we can do this whole program anymore. And I said, yeah, right. She said, why don't you write a piece? Just sit down and write where you are at this moment emotionally about this, what happened. And we aired it the next morning. It's only about six, seven minutes long. 
But it wound up being a not only a eulogy about the chief test pilot, but it was a testimony about all test pilots and the risks they take in order to make aviation safer. The fact that they are all committed to a mission to make aviation safer and better. And so that was the essence of the piece. As a result of that, I began to get involved in the business of the history of military aviation. And so that was 1984. So now it's now, what, 35 years or so. I've been writing about and have done many, many programs about this history. And all of them honor veterans, all veterans, not just aviation veterans, and our active duty personnel who have committed themselves to protecting our Constitution, protecting our freedoms, and make it possible for us to live like we live, like nobody else in the world does. And we're all in their debt. Out of this experience, you uh, one of the things you were involved in was uh, being the MC of the Legends of Aviation Tour in 2010. Yes, I've done a number of programs with the Apollo, uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts over a 30-year period. And uh, three of them were invited to go visit our troops in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Persian Gulf, etc. And they called me and said, uh, Neil Armstrong called, and said, you know, we have done what he called our dog and pony show about the history of the space program many times, alive and, and so on. And he said, would you go with us and let's just do the thing that we've been doing but do it for the troops. And I said, sure, what a privilege. So we did. We did three tours, about 10 days to two weeks each. Went to bases in Iraq, Afghanistan, aircraft carriers in the Northern Arabian Sea, all the bases in the Persian Gulf area. And just to watch the three of them, Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, Gene Cernan, first and last man on the moon, and Lovell, Commander Apollo 13. But to watch them, the most unpretentious, selfless, public servants, and the kids in uniform all over Iraq, Afghanistan, all over the air, by the thousands, say, what are you guys doing here? You shouldn't be here. And they said, we're just here to say thank you to all of you for protecting our freedoms. Three of them were remarkable men, beyond being pilots and astronauts and all that. They were great, great patriots. David, what does America mean to you? Hmm opportunity. And I go back to the Constitution, that those brilliant 20-some guys, and they were all guys, sat down and closed the doors of a room that's now Constitution Hall in Philadelphia. They were from southern states, middle states, New England states. They had different agendas. They had different economic needs, social needs from the three sections of the country. They disagreed about a lot of stuff. And they went into that room for four months and sat down and worked it out and wrote the greatest document of governance that's ever been written. And we should be grateful to them and do everything we can every day to day to make sure we protect that document and what it means to us. David, what's the biggest regret of your life? I don't have any. That's rare. None. Not useful? Waste of time. I think we just go back and look and say, okay, what did I try to do with my life? How well did I live up to my own standards and values? Would my parents have been pleased at how I turned out? I'll never know that. 
That's, which is too bad. That'd be nice if they could have been around. It's the way I feel about my four kids. I want to stay around as long as I can to watch my four uh, develop, and, and they're already doing it. But uh, that's the joy of my life now is to watch them. You know. If you could go back and, and ask David Hartman something, what would it be? Have you considered what more you might have done to make your own life more useful for others? I don't have an answer. That's the question. <laughs> That's a good one. You're good, by the way. <laughs> Thank you, David. Thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, your example. Keith, thank you. This is my pleasure. Thanks for making the effort. I appreciate it. Thanks to Lane McGibbony and all the good folks at Boutwell Studios for all the TLC required to bring this podcast to life. And audio engineers Joe Beeman and Jonathan W. Hickman. Remember, everyone has a special talent. You just need to identify it, cultivate it, and be willing to pay the price. You, too, can become an American Achiever.